Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 22nd of February, and uh, we have an... I'm here with Tyler. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm not bad. We, uh, kind of a busy morning in the Kang household. A lot of things happening at once, but, you know, I think it's because of the long weekend. We have, a uh, we have this, like, funny class divide here in the Bay Area. I think it's true in other places as well, where President's Day is ski week for like Piedmont and the private schools, right? Which are like the wealthier populations. And then everyone else gets four days, right? But they get like 10 days so that they can go to Tahoe. I think that's true on the East Coast too, where like a lot of private schools in New York City will have this entire week off for so that families can go skiing. And it's called informally ski week. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I did not know that. Uh, the only sort of gratuitous week I got off in uh, high school was for like deer season. You get a bunch of time. Off <laughs> oh, you got, yeah. deer, you got deer. Oh, yeah, season. man. It's like a fucking holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a, uh, I think the only thing equivalent in my high school was that when the ACC tournament, NCAA tournament was on when we were growing up, that a lot of the times we would get excused from class and they would wheel in those little you know, like those televisions on stands. Uh, oh, yeah, and that, yeah. Yeah, and we would all get to watch that. That was our growing up in Chev Hill, North Carolina, Tobacco Road. That was the that was the that was sort of the gratuitous localized thing. But yeah, nice. here. Um, yeah. Some of the school districts have ski week. We do not. Uh, this is not to say Berkeley, California is like a poor school district in any way, but it just I think it didn't quite make the cut. Yeah, yeah it just slipped week. under the uh, cut. For ski yeah, week. yeah. In, in 10 years, we might have, you know, we might be fully in the ski week zone, but right now we're not. So I had to get my kids off to school for the first time in four days or whatever. So nice. We have uh, we're going to talk about one thing on the show today, and it's something that we talked about a little bit last week, but we ended up cutting it from the show because we thought that we should do an entire episode on it. It's something I've written about a lot, Tyler. It's something that you have both thought and written about, I think not maybe if not specifically at least alluded to. Right. And that I think it's something that is quite important to listeners of the show who might want to know where we're coming from, who might want to be like, OK, there's this like Asian guy and this black guy. They do this podcast. They have somewhat. And I don't mean this in any insulting way to you because I'm using to describing both of us. Someone an idiosyncratic politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I think that's fair. I'm told right. that a lot. Yeah. Like very I I I uh when I was like, you know, writing the newsletter at the Times, it would occur to me all all the time that I was like, I was like, it's so weird I'm in this position because my politics are just so like they're not anything that if you sort of charted them out and you're like we want this person to be representative i don't think that's the idea of opinion columnists so like but you know there's some people who would say well the opinion columnist should be representative of uh, some portion of the public and should be speaking for that portion of the public's political beliefs and i'd be like there's like four people who have these political <laughs> beliefs yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so i think that's probably true of you too and so no, for sure um and one of the ways I think in which we're aligned on some of this, but maybe have some disagreements about, which is the question of the minority voter, I think is the way that I'll put it, right? Yeah. And there, uh, the ways in which that affiliation has changed over time, like what party they identify with, what politics they identify with. Some of the, I would say, aphasia, right? Some of the blindness in thinking and talking about these groups, right? Now, I've written a lot about how People misunderstand the Asian voter greatly, but it's also true of every other minority voter that they're generally misunderstood. Um, and then 
what we're seeing these days, which is just like months and months of polls that seem to show that minority support for the Democratic Party is dropping specifically for Joe Biden. Right. So I wanted to talk about that. The way we're going to do this is we're going to sort of give you a lot of stats. We're going to talk about it. We're going to you know, talk about some articles. So, Tyler, you want to get us started here? There was a great article uh, on Slow Boring by this woman, um, Lauren Harper, who runs a kind of Democratic PAC um, back in December. Um, and it was looking at who is the black voter, what do they believe, and sort of where do they fit on the political spectrum, particularly on this sort of Democrat side. Um, and one of the things she's kind of doing in this piece is basically myth busting, right? Like, I think there's this way that, uh, at least in the mainstream media, we tend to think of um Black voters is the most progressive faction of the Democratic Party, right? And this just isn't true at all. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll quote the piece. Um, Lauren says, among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, Black voters are the racial demographic least likely to identify as liberal. Only 29% of Black Democrats call their ideology liberal, compared to 37% of their Hispanic counterparts and a whopping 55% of white Democrats and Dem-leaning. Um, a plurality, plurality, 43 percent call themselves moderate and one in four black Democrats identified as conservative. Right. So, right. Um, you know, I think those are numbers that often tend to surprise people. And we don't it feels to me like we don't reckon with them very much. Right. Like a lot of the most, um, for lack of a better word, sort of uh, radical sort of policy proposals and um, sort of Ideologies within the Democratic Party are primarily driven by white voters, even as, you know, those same white voters or politicians or pundits often make the case that, like, you know, this is what the black vote wants, et cetera, whether that's about, you know, policing or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think the average black voter um, and, you know, data seems to bear this out are, are much more moderate and conservative than the average Democratic voter and particularly than the average white voter. Right. Um, and so I think there's an interesting question about why is Biden and the Democratic Party more broadly bleeding, you know, black support? I think um, there's I think the prediction right now is that around 27 percent of uh, black men in particular um, plan to vote for Trump, I think is the statistic. That's one in four. Right. Um, and, you know, it seems to me that the, when you bring this up, um, a Democrats really don't seem to like to talk about it. And when you do bring it up, the case they often make like a weird case, either, you know, that this is internalized racism or, you know, those people are stupid or sometimes it'll just be like straightforwardly racist and they'll be like, oh, this is because black men listen to hip hop and Trump, you know, is right. was, or disin you know, the big one is disinformation, right? Oh, they're all their brains are melted by disinformation. They yeah, can't yeah. think for themselves. That was a big theme around um, Asian American vote switch shifts after the oh, attacks. And it was uh, this group of kind of NGO type people and, and academics put together this massive report about misinformation in the Asian American community. It was essentially that like, oh, wow, this person, this Chinese American recent immigrant doesn't support Black Lives Matter. And the reason why is because they're being fed disinformation. I was like, that is not the right term. You can say that this person is an asshole. You know, you can yeah, say that yeah, this person yeah, yeah. is racist, but it's very likely that they took in information and came to their conclusion about it based on their self-interest. That also cropped up around Latino vote and the black vote, right? Like yep. that, that, and that I found that 
explanation to be so wildly racist that like totally it racist blew my brain. It's mind bogglingly racist. And like one of my perennial frustrations, I wrote an article six months ago about Tim Scott that I now regret writing because, you know, Tim Scott's a piece of shit. Uh, but I basically was making the case that like, you know, people often accuse Tim Scott of being an Uncle Tom. This is like a, a really popular line. Um, and what I find offensive about it is that um progressives often seem to think when there's a black voter politician pundit whatever who isn't you know progressive left-leaning or a democrat there are one of two possible explanations one is that they're stupid the second is that they're just in the pocket of moneyed elites and on the conservative side and are just basically a grifter that peddles uh, Republican right. talking points in exchange for cash. And both of those explanations are so deeply paternalistic and racist, it's insane to me, right? Like black people that don't toe the Democratic line are either idiots or they're basically, you know, taking money to say things they don't believe. And there's just this deep reticence to um, think, admit even consider that black voters who don't lean Democrat um, might have considered the available information uh, and right, come right. to a different kind of conclusion. And even if I find those conclusions gross, it's, it's so baffling to me that so many people are so comfortable just running with this really quite racist uh, set of assumptions that, you know, these are low information voters or they're misinformed voters or they're disinformed voters or they're stupid or they're on a grift. Um, I don't know. It's really a uh, it's dispiriting. Joe Biden in 2020, like, seemed to kind of understand this, right? In South Carolina, totally, especially. Yeah. It's like one of those things where um, I don't know if you remember that moment. And I think it's like a very pivotal moment in American history where the Bernie won Nevada and everybody was cheering. And then like kind of like this weird, like, backroom decision where all the other candidates were going to back Biden and stab Bernie in the back. And then, um, oh, I don't remember the name of the uh, sort of longstanding congressperson um, in South Carolina, the black congressperson, who's oh, like sort yeah, of the yeah, power yeah. wielder, um, came out and supported. He, he had said, I'm not like, I'm not going to comment. I'm not going to endorse anyone that he endorsed Biden. And then basically it was, the race was over after that. Right. So yep. um, you had this moment. And I remember there are people who were like, who like believe that there is some great conspiracy and that all the black voters in South Carolina had been tricked and that this guy was not really looking out for their best interests. Like I can, I can make that argument. You can make that argument just because I prefer Bernie's policies to Biden's policies. Right. But Same. the idea that he was acting as some sort of like rogue agent and not Rasping. trying to represent the people that were of South Carolina that he knows much better than, you know, like the, I don't know, like a political consultant or something like that was like, I was just like, oh man, we've kind of lost a plot here. <laughs> you know? Like yeah. we don't like, come on. Like, you know, these are black families in South Carolina, you know, like, like it's, if you don't think that they're like, that they have a, a pragmatic idea of who should win or who can win so that we don't have Trump again. Right. Like that's part of it then. And maybe they were right about that. Right. Because Biden did end sure. up winning. Um, and then if you also think that like they're too dumb to know what's best for them, right? Like, I don't know. It's just like, it's so discomforting. And yet it, it seems like so much of the political conversation is exactly that, right? Like you pointed out, it's just either they're too dumb to know or they've been hoodwinked, right? One of the things that I think John McWhorter says that I agree with him on, which is that the idea of the quote unquote black community is such a mystification, right? Like it means nothing at all, but we parade it around all the time. Like, oh, the black community this and the black community that. And it's like, well, which black community? Because there's a huge set of cultural differences between Northern and Southern black people, between rural and urban black people, between 
college educated black people and non-college educated black people like every other group right like no one would say the white community because you would immediately be like well which white people because there's a lot of different kinds who think a lot of different things um and yet for some reason we cling to this mystification about the black community as some kind of monolithic voting block that has a uh you know some kind of mystical essence of shared beliefs and and thoughts and feelings and opinions. Um, And it's really deeply unhelpful. Um, But I think it's, you know, one of the reasons why we don't often talk about the deep divides within the sort of black vote in the Democratic Party. And we don't talk about the fact that a lot of black voters are moderate, like, you know, the voters in South Carolina. And we don't talk about the fact that actually an extreme minority of black voters identify as progressive. I think um, the last stat I looked at was only like 4% of black voters identify as progressives, right? Right, Uh, right. sort of farthest left of progressive. Um, And yeah, that all just gets papered over in favor of something called the black community that is largely this, you know, thing we trot out white folks trot out in order to sort of uh, really advance their own favored policy agenda but yeah right well i will say this which is and this is the thing i think we're going to be investigating or just thinking through here which is that i agree with you but it is true that 90 percent of the black vote votes democrat consistently oh, yeah. right up until and that's now. the interesting um, thing and that's the, the question i think that many people have, and I saw this within a lot of like sort of, I follow a lot of these political science nerd things, you know, and uh, when these numbers started coming out about like, you know, like 22% of black voters in battleground states, for example, back in November said that they would vote for Trump. 71% said Biden. If that holds like we're, it's Toast. it's over, it's over, right? And that there was a big swing after the last two elections where Trump was at 8% and 6% of the black vote, right? Like that this would, that anything even close to 22% in these states would constitute a huge swing. Um, And then that's coupled with a Latino vote, right? In January, USA Today poll finds that Trump has 39% of the Latino vote and Biden only has 34%. That's crazy given that Biden got 65% of the Latino vote in 2020, right? And that um, there's this, debate within political science, right, which says that, okay, these numbers are just numbers and that when the election comes, they'll swing back and it'll regress, basically regress back to the mean, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That there is 90% shows such a robust support that it does not seem possible that this type of swing could happen within three years. And so perhaps maybe people are frustrated about et cetera, et cetera, but they'll end up voting Democrat anyway. That is very possible that that's true. And I imagine that these numbers are not going to hold. I'd be stunned if they would. But Eve, the problem is that even if they don't reg- even if they regress like 50 percent instead of 100 percent back. Right. Like we're still fucked. <laughs> totally. And so um, like it seems like the thing that people should be talking about the most. I think people have talked about it more than in, in previous election cycles and have been a little bit more careful about it to, to give credit to my colleagues in the media. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think that. The big headline here is that this is kind of an emergency if you're part of the Democratic Party and totally. there needs to be some sort of investigation into why this has happened. Like, what, what's your big theory on this? There's, you know, just let, let's not let's not lump everything together, but like specific for the black vote, like how do you account for these numbers like 22 percent in in battleground states? You know, I don't know. I think um, it doesn't seem to me that there's anyone who is like qualified to do that work that seems very interested in figuring out or doing it. You know, um, I you know, I I think um, 
I don't want to do something like, well, it's, you know, wokeness and progressivism that has pushed black voters to the right. And yet at the same time, I think if you just look at the data that shows that most black voters are moderates, one out of four identifies as a conservative, even as they vote Democrat. Um, You know, it does make some sense to me that particularly in the wake of 2016, as you know, the left gets more left and the right gets more right, that, you know, it might be the case that some Black Americans don't feel like the Democratic Party on cultural issues represents, you know, their best interest or represents their worldview. Um, I tend to, you know, I, I go back and forth on this. I mean, on the one hand, I tend to think that, you know, economic issues and other sorts of uh, more you know, kitchen table problems are the things that drive voters in general. Um, and that I think, you know, we lean too much on cultural war explanations for why people vote the way they do. And yet at the same time, it's really, um, you know, when you do have one out of four black Americans identifying as a conservative within the Democratic Party, it's, I think, shouldn't be that surprising that as, you know, the Democratic Party moves left, they might lose some of those voters. Um, the thing that I think bothers me the most is not um, is just like how we talk about this and the lack of curiosity about it within the media. Right. Um, And, you know, I I really dislike the explanation that, you know, the sort of wonk set is given, which is that, you know, oh, this is even though this seems like a huge swing, it's magically you're going to regress back at the time of elections. And that's just total magical thinking. And it's almost Trumpian to me, like the Trump people are always like, oh, the polls are lying. The polls aren't right. The polls aren't accounting for X, Y, Z, right? We shouldn't trust the polls. Um, And it's really disturbing to me that suddenly that's the same kind of line we're hearing from the Democrats that, oh, voters are going to magically remember how bad Trump is in the in the months leading up to the election, and they're going to come back into the tent. Um, and, you know, maybe that's true. And I totally agree with you that, you know, I, I don't expect we'll see this drastic swing that we're currently seeing as we get closer and closer to the election. Um, but at the same time, I'm shocked by how many of the kind of wonks and the data people are coming to the conclusion like, oh, no, no, like, don't worry about the polling. It's all going to be fine. They just forgot about fascism being bad or whatever. And they're going to remember. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Well, like, OK, I, I I will say that I um, I think I I think that I kind of agree with them about a lot of that stuff because I do think and I don't know why, but I just think that these numbers can't be that real even but i do Mm -hmm. the reason why i take them seriously is because it's months and months of these polls now separate polls all of them show the same trend and that um i believe that eventually that they can't quite be be this bad but like i said i think that if they're almost as if they're even just half as as bad it's still a huge problem i agree with you about the lack of curiosity and i think that that's like one of these things that basically the media is very bad at reporting in minority communities um and it always has been. It's always been a blind spot. It's getting better at it, but it's still mm-hmm. not like the. I will just say that I think the liberal sentiments that we talked about at the top of the show, which are just that, oh, these people are dumb, like that tends to rule the day, mm-hmm. right? Or they're weird or like there's something wrong with them. Um, and I think that uh, that lack of curiosity has made this into a bit of a black box where nobody really understands it, nobody really gets it. The closest we got was when there was a huge swing uh, for the Latino vote, right? And people found that it was almost entirely concentrated on the Rio Grande Valley, like along the border in Texas, right? And mm-hmm. that that was 
a big concentration of it in parts of Florida as well, where like yep. uh, large populations the swung. Cubans, though, I think. And that was interesting because it was like, okay, well, these specific populations are moving far, 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 far to the right of where they were. And then, but then when it came to like, what's the explanation, the traditional explanation was just, or the one that I saw the most was misinformation. <laughs> Totally. And dude, so many of those studies are being debunked. Like, I mean, that's, you know, the social sciences are bullshit and they're, they're, you know, uh, constantly in the middle of replication crisis scandals and whatever else. But like so much of that disinformation stuff in the last couple of years has been, you know, totally debunked as like nonsense. Um, And so, yeah, I just I find it a racist in the ways that you've identified, but B, like there's not even a lot of really good evidence that the disinformation thing really is doing what its proponents who've gotten millions and millions of dollars in academic grants are, you know, hysterically insisting it does. Right. And it adds to the mystification problem, right? Like, why is this happening? And basically, because nobody is giving it a good try and trying to figure it out why, and they always, they're defaulting to this disinformation explanation, that essentially what is the scenario that is laid out to people is that, oh, the internet is reaching these people now they all have phones and their brains are being melted and they can't stop this disinformation and they're all changing their mind because there's such strong disinformation campaigns in those groups which basically puts no responsibility at all on the democratic party right it puts no responsibility even on the republican party really you know totally that's a good point yeah it just essentially says that these people are being targeted by like shady actors that we don't know that we don't know why they're doing this, but the they're Russians, somewhere in a, yeah. yeah, they're somewhere in Estonia and they've started a bot farm and this is why these votes have done. And I think that, you know, like, look, I obviously think all that is bullshit, mm-hmm. but even in a world in which I accept that some of that is true, the problem is that it doesn't actually provide any type of explanation, right? It's still a black box. I don't have some grand theory of causation as to what's causing, you know, a small but potentially, you know, significant election terms, you know, portion of, you know, the black vote to move to the right. Um, but yeah, the just like lack of curiosity, um, the lack of good data about it, the disinterest in like acquiring that data. And then as you point out, right, we just have like a bunch of numbers thrown at us, but that don't at all point to what the causes are here. You know, um, I mean, I think part of the problem is that um, the right historically has been very good at recognizing that they are juggling a bunch of different groups with competing interests ideas, cultures, and values. And the left has historically been really bad at that, right? Like, I mean, the modern Republican Party, there's a great book um, by this guy named George Nash um, called, I think, The Conservative Tradition in America or something like that. But it's about like, how did the modern Republican Party form? And it formed out of a coalition of people from the USSR who um, emigrated to the United States who were rabidly anti-communist, evangelical Christians, and then just like sort of normie suburbanites and kind of, you know, Hayeki and market fundamentalists, right? Um, and their right. interests were often not aligned at all, right? Like the evangelical Christians had very little common with suburbanites who didn't want to be taxed. Um, but the Republican Party was really good at sort of building a coalition out of those wildly divergent groups. Um, and the Democrats are often really, really bad at that. And that seems to me to be the problem right now is that there's not 
that kind of almost like anthropological effort to like recognize that like, okay, we have a bunch of different constituencies that we're knitting together. We have a more left leaning, um, you know, urban black vote. We have a slightly more centrist and moderate rural black vote. We have like the Hispanic vote that thinks this, you know, there's just none of that effort. Um, and instead, there's just these grand sweeping narratives about fascism and democracy and blah, blah, blah. And not that right. I don't think Trump sucks and not that I don't think that like there's a reason to be concerned about authoritarianism or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. It just there's a lot of data and there's a lot of sort of sweeping macro scale qualitative explanations. And it doesn't seem like there's very much sort of granular thinking at the sort of regional or community level about, you know, what what's driving these shifts across the board uh, in you know, black community and within the Latino community, the number one concern that has been stated is the economy and inflation, right? And that makes a ton of sense. And I think that the people who are basically uh, the sort of, you know, nothing to see here group, right, which I would say that I kind of agree with, uh, are saying that at some point inflation will come down and that, you know, people will stop worrying about it and that, um, a lot of these numbers and swings are driven by like people going to the grocery store and understandably like freaking out at the cost of eggs. Right. Even right. I do that. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I think people are crazy when they don't like, I right. get my grocery, I like go to the grocery store and I get the bill every single time. I'm just like, what the fuck? How's this so high? And it's like stupid. Right. Because it's like, yeah, I, I understand all that. But it's just a sense reaction that you have when a totally. bill is higher than it used to be. And that if those bills come back under control, then um, a lot of this will come back. The thing that I don't quite believe is that like the two are so correlated in time where like, let's say the price of groceries is exactly the same as it was pre-pandemic tomorrow. Like people aren't going to realize that, you know, and people aren't no. going to stop being mad about it. It's not like they're like, oh, yeah, it's back to normal. Everything's fine. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden again. Like that's not how people's totally. brains work. But I do think that there will be some like calming down of this economic the concerns about the economy by then, right? And that there's a lot of evidence that sort of shows that that's happening and that maybe that's where the regression will come back in these polls, right? That it might come back from an economic standpoint. But um, I don't know, something you said was really resonant to me, which is that like, I don't think right now that the Democrat, part of the problem is that the Democratic Party, like I, I have a, whenever somebody starts a uh, new publication, uh, or Substack or something like that. I always have this like test in my head where I say, if the person writes the first five sentences about what they're not, then I'm just not going to read it. You know, like, and that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. so common. They're just like, if they're like, we're a new publication and we, these are why all the other publications that are kind of like us suck and we're not going to do any of the things that they do and we're going to be different. And I'm just like, you need to tell me what you are. You know, you can't define yourself totally. by what you're not. Uh, or else I'm just not going to care because like, I don't really feel that strongly about those other publications except to vaguely think that they suck. I agree with you about that. But like, what are you going to do? You're just going to shit on other publications the whole time. Like, I, I don't need to read that. Um, I think the same is true right now in terms of making appeals to minority communities within the Democratic Party, which is that like, basically the only thing is like, we're not them. And if you don't list, if you don't align yourself with us, you're going to the camps, right? Like that's totally. basically, that's like, yeah, that's, 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 the, a, pitch, that's the message. That's a pitch. And like, we already went through four years of Trump. It was bad, right? It was really bad. And I think that people who say it wasn't bad are like quite delusional in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, second Trump is scary. It's very scary, right? 
But man, you cannot just say, right, we are offering you nothing except the alternative is going to be really bad. And I think that that is, I think that works for a lot of sort of suburban, very well-educated white voters. I think that works because I think that they have those people, and I would just say this, like they're, I think they do have a lot of compassion. I think they think about these things. They want the world to be multi, they want the country to be multi-ethnic. They do not want like a, they do not want like a white ethnic state with a bunch of like, yeah, with like a bunch of militias running around. (laughs) They don't want that. Right. And so like that type of appeal works for them, but I don't think it really works so well anymore for these minority communities who have been in the United States now for like an increasingly long amount of time. You know, they might feel a different foothold than other people. They might relate to their communities in different types of way. And if all you're doing is like, hey, dummy, if you don't vote for us, you're going in the camps. Right. And they're just like at some point, some of those people are going to be like, what have you what are you doing for me? You know, like, <laughs> right? Totally. And, and that I think that's sort of the existential problem, like the headline existential problem here right now, which is just that. Democratic Party does not offer anything except fear mongering for for large minority communities. I don't think that that's true in terms of policy. I think a lot of the policies are helpful, but yep. they don't lead with those policies and how they're helpful. They don't. Right. They lead with like, Fashion. you're going to be in a camp. Trump was awful. A second Trump term will be worse. I do not buy the notion that we're going to be in the grip of a handmaid's tale style fascist dictatorship if Trump is elected. I, I think a lot of other people who are not like those suburbanites also don't necessarily buy that. Um, and so, you know, I just I don't think that pitch that if you don't vote for us, you're going to go to the camps is one that resonates, particularly when like a huge percentage of, the, you know, the um, Republicans who were trying to primary Trump were Republicans of color. They didn't succeed. But every year, the Republican Party and its leadership looks more diverse. The two most likely vice presidential candidates are Vivek and Nikki Haley, both of whom are minorities. Right. And so when you're seeing that and they suck, right, Vivek sucks and Nikki Haley sucks. That's not my point. But, you know, when a black voter or whoever is hearing the Democrats say, if Trump gets elected, you're going to the camps. And then Nikki Haley and Vivek are the two vice presidential candidates. Like it defangs that uh, narrative a little bit. Right. And so I just, I don't, I don't understand why that's, you know, the fear mongering is what Democrats are leading with rather than, you know, here's these policies that we've put in place that are actually working for you. Um, and, you know, on the economy and inflation piece that you mentioned, I totally agree. And I think, um, one of the things that strikes me as a problem, and I'm not a, an economist, so I'll, I'll be careful about how I put this, but it just it seems to me that a, one of the ways, you know, that people think about the economy is partly the grocery stuff you mentioned, but it's also like big life expenses, right? Like my wife and I right now want to buy another car. We're waiting to buy a car because inflation sucks, right? Or, you know, housing. So many of my friends, you know, our faculty who moved to Maine recently, what's the plan for housing? What's the plan for, you know, getting inflation down? Like, just tell us what the plan is. Um, and instead, it feels like, you know, we have these data guys wagging their finger at us and saying, know, actually, you know, the economy is really bad. good. Yeah, I think that know. about the Yimbies too, where it's like, I agree with you guys about almost everything, but you need to find some people who can speak for you who are not just going to post charts on Twitter and condescend to everybody. <laughs> you know? Dude, yeah, I mean, fucking, oh, I, I, like, I, I kind of, I, I mostly agree with the economy is actually, is good, actually, people. Totally. But then I also, but then the housing question is a really interesting one, too, because I do think that most people, 
think about their ability, their economic standing through their housing options, right? And absolutely, that, um, buying a house is the biggest like, hey, I made it or I'm comfortable. It's a big hurdle that everybody has. Home ownership is very important in America. In fact, it's probably the most important political affiliation that one can have is whether they're a homeowner or not in terms totally. of like dictating the rest of their politics. And right now it's hard to buy a house because interest rates are high and you know people can't buy the house that they could have bought when interest rates were very low and they get frustrated about that. The fact that interest rates are high makes it that the you know a lot of places have a very low inventory, which makes higher competition for that, but also like people can't find that type of place that they want. Right. And like, this is all very real stuff and it affects people and that, um, they're not going to look at a chart of, you know, real wages and then say, oh yeah, that's actually, I was wrong about all these feelings. Uh, going back to the idea of like what the message should be, I've thought, I've given this a lot of thought and I just basically think that there needs to be a very hyper localized way to do this. It can't be national. And that this was some, I started thinking about this because I talked for a bit with Chuck LaRocca, who is the guy who was in charge of uh, Tio Bernie and did a lot of the Nevada outreach for Bernie, which, you know, mm -hmm. for the Latino vote in 2020 for Bernie, that was a huge, huge victory. And it should be, it, sh it should rightfully be studied and thought about quite a bit, right? Like, how is he able to do this? Um, and he basically said that there was a problem in which like the reason why the Democrats thought about these things on a national level was because a lot of the people who are working are what he called woke white consultants, right? The woke yeah. white consultant class. And that these are typically Ivy League educated people who come in, they have certain beliefs of what minority communities are without really understanding them and that their idea of what those minority communities are, are based basically on like a progressive consensus that they read about in the New York times or, or whatever publication you want to say. And that they believe that the black voters are all sort of, you know, uh, anti-police. They believe that the Latino voters are all, you know, concerned about like, there's basically very stereotypical ideas about all of this stuff, mm -hmm. right? And that the prescription for all of this will be like a sort of soft anti-racist type of message, right? Yeah, yeah. Like a kind of one that's informed by like uh, diversity, equity, inclusion type of stuff or informed by um, anti-police stuff or informed, although they will never commit Prison to actually anti-police, right? Like the, these ideas need to be kind of checked off in little boxes and what's interesting to me it's always been interesting to me is that like it's not just white candidates who have this problem like this is also kamala harris's problem you know when totally. she was running where i was like what are you like and like liz warren especially where it's just like i was like i whenever liz warren would speak i would be like well there's a lot of parts of this policy that i agree with that i think would be good you know but i do not understand why it really really seems like there's a 25 year old uh, working somewhere in the Liz Warren campaign that is addicted to Twitter, that is taking all of their political stances <laughs> from, from from Twitter, you know? Oh, yeah. And so this is a large problem, I think. And I think that the answer to it is basically just to be about as local as you can be in terms of the messaging. I think if you're in Lexington, Massachusetts, or if, I mean, I don't know if that place matters, but if you're like in Gross Point, Michigan or something like that, right? A mm -hmm. wealthy, white, uh, progressive bastion. Maybe Gross Point isn't, but Lexington is. Um, sure. Or like Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is where I'm from, right? Which is like a wealthy, well, wealthy-ish, uh, very progressive type of place. Then you can, you should 
do the whole camps thing for those people, you know, yeah, because yeah. like, yeah, it really works on them. Yeah, they know? love it, dude. <laughs> They're like, I don't want it's my favorite. Uh, yeah, I don't want my Indian neighbor to go to the camps. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but uh, which, you know, God bless either. them, right? We yeah. need more people like that in the world. And the world, I think, would be honest. It's like one totally. of my like, most like stupid takes, which is basically just like if everyone was like a resistance liberal, America would be like pretty great. Totally, 100%. <laughs> like, yeah. It'd be much MSNBC better than it brained. is. brained. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like generally, they, they tend to be about a, a right about a lot about enough where I'm like totally okay with it. But yeah. Um, you can't give that message in different communities where it's like they might not believe that. Right. Or even in communities where they think, oh, you're not talking about me, but that guy over there who's undocumented, he should go to the camps. <laughs> and so uh, I don't know. The question that I had a long talk about this uh, once with somebody who was a fellow journalist who I really support or I really respect their opinion on this, somebody who's done a lot of research into this and a lot of thinking in there, just like we're those people are gone, you know, like the people who are leaving are gone and they're just never going to come back. And she was talking specifically about the Asian community. She's like, look, there are a lot of Asian people who got mad about affirmative action. There's a lot of people who got mad about selective schools. These are big national stories for Asians, right? Even if you think like, why would somebody in Kansas care about what's happening at Thomas Jefferson High School in uh, Virginia? Like they do, they hear about it, they care. And that they'll never come back and that there should be a new appeal. I don't know. What do you think about that? Like this idea that like uh, whatever has been lost is lost and they're, you know, like there's no regaining it and that we're just dealing with a new, new, new type of demographic now. I think it's, it's true to a degree, or at least it seems to me true to a degree. Like, I think there are definitely some voters who, um, you know, move right and are probably not coming back. Um, I don't think it's the case that we can't improve messaging in a way that like keeps some of the people on the fringes or more in the independent box, you know, loyal to the democratic side. Um, but I do think there's just like a persistent failure to recognize different I mean, this is what we've been talking about, but just different voting coalitions within the Democratic Party. I mean, I think a lot about one of my favorite articles in the last couple of years was by Julius Krein, who's a conservative guy, but I think this piece was really good. It was in American Affairs. Um, and he was basically making the case that, you know, what the left fails to understand is that the main revolutionary force on the left is within the professional managerial class. And it's in the top 10%. And he's like, the real class antagonism right now is between the 0.1%, which he calls the oligarchs, and the 9.9% who are the elites. And he says, the distinction between those two groups is that the oligarchs make their money from capital gains. Whereas the other 9.9% make a lot of money, but they have to work really hard for it. So it's like the people on Wall Street working 80 hours a week or whatever. Um, right, and he's like, lawyers, if you look at, yeah. yeah, and lawyers, he's like, and if you look at the policy proposals that are supposedly the most left, and these are the ones I agree with, right? But like stuff like free college, student debt relief, etc. He's like, who does that benefit? It benefits the 9.9%. It doesn't benefit the bottom 50%. They're not going to college, right? They don't have student loans. And so he basically is like, you know, the problem is that Democrats do this thing where, or at least, you know, that subset of the more like left people fantasize that their policies are actually targeted at poor minorities when they're just targeted at themselves. Right. right, right? right, right. Um, and I think we need to recognize that like a part of the Democratic coalition is this kind of 
PMC. There are other parts of the coalition, minority votes, labor or whatever, who have different kinds of priorities. Those priorities might not be free college for all and student debt, right? There are other kinds of priorities. And I think, you know, we just need to do that anthropological work of like thinking about like, who are our constituencies? Not you know, indulging in this fantasy that, um, you know, the most progressive wing of the party is the bulk of the party and really trying to, and I think you're right, like think locally about our messaging. Um, but there's just so much universalism, so many sort of grand narratives and so much, um, kind of delusion that the, you know, favored policies of that, you know, 10% elite democratic voter represent the working class or whatever. Um, and I think there's a lot to be excited about. I mean, you and I have talked about some of the labor politics that have been happening recently that are, that are great. Right. And I think it's just a matter of recognizing that we have these different factions who need and want different things. And maybe some of those people are already lost, but I don't think that's, um, that's hard and fast, you know? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I, I think also it's like maybe instead of trying to reach the, Asian family that's been uh, turned away from the Democratic Party for life because of anti-Asian attacks and schooling stuff, that you reach out to different portions who don't vote now, right? That 100%. That's, all, that's very, very hard, but it's also almost impossible to flip those people back, I think, right? So either way, you have an uphill climb. And um, I don't know, I guess I, I this is something I, th- I there is, this is, I've never, I will just put it this way. In terms of like sort of political commentary, whatever, there's a piece that Jamel Bowie wrote when he was at Slate that I think about probably more than any other column that I think has been written in the past 20 or so years. And I've, I think I've even talked about it on the podcast a lot, but it was sort of Jamel making this case, and this was many years ago, um, that the Democrats needed to revisit the Rainbow Coalition. Do you, have you read this article by Jamil? No, I haven't. And it was sort of pointed out that when Jesse Jackson started his campaign, Jesse Jackson started it at a farm in Iowa, right? That he And that he talked a lot about the concerns of white, poor, rural farmers, right? And that the Rainbow Coalition was this idea that um, all people would have economic anxiety, right? That all people felt sort of the weight of income inequality in America and that we should make a broad appeal across races to to talk about class and we should not talk about class in that sort of specific way, like in a sure. left way, but right. That, that economic concerns would be the unifying force. And that, that, that the reason why Jesse Jackson's campaign didn't work out, I don't know. I've talked to a lot of people about this, but a lot of it was about Jesse Jackson, right? Like that's sure. part of the reason why it didn't work out, but also it's hard to run a black candidate in 1988. Right. Um, and so, uh, I think about that all the time as opposed to like, well, what is this one unifying message going to be, right? Or are you going to have to have dozens and dozens of little messages, but like still at the top, the person running for president or whatever needs to say something, right? Like they they still need to like have a message that they say publicly, even if like in little enclaves, different messengers are giving different messages. Um, what do you think that should be at this point if we accept that this bleed out of, of minority votes is real and that it can be that it's basically fatal to, to Biden's chances, which I think I agree with those two. Those two mm-hmm. premises seem right, you know, to me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a way of talking about class and economic inequality and lowering inequality um, that doesn't have to be like a it packaged in a hard left kind of Marxist idiom or whatever, even if that's my favorite packaging. Like, I think there's a way to talk about, you know, 
actually working class people, white and black, both face the same set of problems. They can't afford housing. They can't afford a new car. The groceries are too expensive. They can't afford upward mobility for their kids by sending them to college, whatever, right? Like, I think, um, and I think at his best, that was what uh, Obama, like, that was the front he put on. Yeah, the reality he was, was that he was like that. a crass neoliberal warmonger. But like the front he put on was that kind of coalition of like <laughs> right. the working class and lift right, everybody right. up, et cetera. Um, and I think that's really been abandoned. And one of my perennial frustrations, you know, I come from one of these Trumpy places, um, but uh, people both uh, my county went Obama both times and then it flipped to Trump. Um, not oh, by so lot, you're but, one of the you're one of the studied counties then. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and you know, I think I, I know a lot of people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. You know, and those people didn't get racist, right? Like they they saw that Obama, when the housing market blew up, bailed out the banks, and you know, right. didn't help out working people, etc. Like they had policy objections that put them off. And yes, it's stupid to think this dumb billionaire from New York was going to be a bomb to those policy objections or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think there, there was like a promise that we had from Obama, which was this kind of vaguely rainbow coalition-y thing. He sounded way more left kind of when he was running. And then the reality that that bubble popped, you know, and I think um, trying to rekindle that idea, but like take it more seriously, uh, it would, would be a, a, a winning message. You know, um, I'm just, I'm really not, you know, as somebody that is now uh, from kind of Trump country, I just I do not think the average person is motivated by racism. I just I simply do not buy that. Um, and I think, you know, they have stupid reasons for supporting Trump. But I don't think the, the like wanting a white ethno state is like at the top of the list for most people. I think it's. Just, yeah, it is for yeah. some. But for those, some, people dude, all, 100%. those people are cra- those people like are not 40 percent of the country. And yeah, I have yeah. a very hard time believing that myself. I think that, um, I think, you know, who gets picked as judges, you know, like questions about abortion, these are all important too. And it's like the, the it can't just be this message that everyone's racist except for us. And yep. if you don't like racism, then you have to get on this team. Um, Meanwhile, though, we live in the most segregated cities on the planet. But uh, yeah, it's the right, other racists right, over right, there that are and, bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I guess I... I I can't, this is something that's on my mind quite a bit. I'm very curious about your thought about it, which is that like, I think that this election is going to come down to whether or not the, uh, and I, I'm pretty bullish, but I think Biden's probably going to win. But I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that needs to happen is that the vote that came out to oppose uh, Dobbs, right. That has sort of been replicated throughout different parts of the country, Mm -hmm. that that energy needs to be carried forward. Um, But that the problem is that we're kind of, like there's a clock on this stuff, right? Where it's still going to be center of mind and it can't be like 10 years where people basically vote this way. Um, Some states are not going to have abortion access on the ballot. Some will. And then the states that do like, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of voter turnout, I think amongst like a, what I think would just be like sort of a white, white, white woman voters. Right. And that white woman voters are very important to this election. When I was at the times I wrote a, column and it was going to basically just be like white women are the you know like <laughs> it was basically saying karens are the we need to basically rely on the karen vote for the for the yeah, yeah. sake of the country and i think that's true still you know um yep. have you read but, um oh sorry go ahead go ahead oh uh and my but then i i i feel like there's a i sometimes then just think about all right well then what is 
what comes with that, right? Like what comes with that type of need. And I think that there's a, a lot of people who have much more sort of intense politics than me that say like, okay, well then all sorts of bad stuff will happen because of that. Right. Because you haven't sort of centered the right people or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I just think we're kind of in this place now where that's just going to, we're just going to have to trust. We're going to have to trust the Karen vote a lot, you know, a lot more than we might've in the last eight years, because like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that, I think, I kind of think that a lot of these minority vote numbers are not entirely real, but more real than the complete naysayers say. And I just yep. don't think that they're coming back. Right. Like, and I think that we're just going to need a big flood of white suburban voters to carry the Democrats for a long time. And they definitely have carried them for the last uh, mm -hmm. two election cycles, right. The, the general and the midterm, like it's, it's working. And so you have to kind of also acknowledge that the thing that's working might, maybe we should keep doing that, but yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, Richard Hanani is loathsome, but every once in a while he says something accidentally smart. And he had a um, piece I saw on Twitter recently about Taylor Swift Democrats. And he was saying the reason the Republicans lose and that they suck is that they like don't get that the average voter is basically like a Taylor Swift Democrat, by which he means that they're just like, they want to have a nice house and have like, you know, a nice, you know, relationship and just like they just want things to be normal right and like part of normal is not like the white ethno state vision it's just they want everything to be normal um and i think that's like the suburban voter right which is like i don't want my indian friend to go to the camps and i just want to have my house and i want to have my two kids and have my normal life and not be worried about fascism and like have other stuff other than like evil trump on the news you know um and i think you're and i think that's like basically like the karen suburbanite you're describing this kind of like taylor swift democrat and I think there's something basically to that. Um, I, I, I still am more um, optimistic than you. I think that some of these voters can be brought back or kept in the fold. But I also totally agree that there's like a lot of untapped populations of voters that don't vote that can be tapped that I think Bernie was actually good at getting some of yeah. those people out. And I think like resuscitating that and targeting those people makes a lot of sense. And because I, I do think you're right that there are parts of the vote um, that have been lost that are not coming back. Um, you know, but I think there's plenty of reasons for optimism elsewhere. I think you're right, though. I mean, you said there's a clock on the abortion issue. And I think that clock like runs through this election. I, I You can't I just agree, run yeah. on abortion right. forever. Um, and so I think that'll be an important issue with this election. But going forward, I mean, the way I've been thinking about this is we just need to win in 2024 one way or the other. And then there really needs to be a reckoning within the Democratic Party about like what the fuck we're doing here, right? Because yeah. the abortion issue isn't going to last I'm not interested in a version of the Democratic Party that is made up of like college educated white suburbanites from the top 30 percent of income exclusively. Right. And so like top 30 percent yeah. of income. I mean, yeah, yeah it's like it's yeah. really I, I think that a lot of times when people talk about this stuff, they ignore the massive failure of the Republican Party over the past so six years. Incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've lost they lose everything. They've lo they're losing all over the place right now. Right. And it's like not like that has to be the part the part that you stand from or you start at and then the second question that you can ask after you note that is like well why is this trump guy doing so well in all these polls right now right? and that's that mm -hmm. is like a, that that's sort of i think where we are coming out of all of this um yeah the last thing i wanted to ask you about which was uh you know like i think that it's one that i don't know i guess it's maybe something that we should have started with but 
I don't, the underlying question on all of this is, and I think it's one that, you know, you and I think about quite a bit. It's also one that we've read a lot of books about and thought about quite a bit, which is just like, well, how do you break, is it possible to break this thing where, um, where everything that we talk about is basically captured within a very small portion of the upper middle class educated elite, right? There's a lot of studies about how the real dividing lines and are college educated, not college educated mm-hmm. voters. I find that to be very, very convincing because like the numbers are so yep. stark, right? It's just like, okay, like this is actually a divide, right? Whereas other things I don't think are really divides, you know, mm-hmm. it's just ways to sort data, right? I think about this a lot because I have a kid and I'm, the kid isn't, my daughter is in public school and I think about it all the time, which is just like, why is there a, why are people leaving public schools over the past, since the pandemic, right? Why is there, why in places like Oakland, which I live very close to, why is there this failure of the public school system? Um, And what, how is it, how is it related to what I do, right? Like, which is work in the media and sort of, you know, work on large messaging things, even if I say I'm a journalist or whatever, like that's the effect of it, right? Like sort of the voice of whatever that's put out there. Um, And my conclusion a lot of times is that, well, what we are saying does not really match what's actually happening, right? And that there is a mismatch because so much of what we say is is concerns of the upper middle class who are going to be fine as well. And that things like schools are very big, complicated things where a lot of people have to buy in, but they also feel very passionately about it because it's their children's future. And that... um, People just aren't going to buy these sort of progressive ideas when it comes to schooling ever. It doesn't really matter what the school says. I'm just saying like they're not going to send their kids to a shitty like or dangerous or whatever public school because they feel compelled to do so. Right. Some very small minority of people will. And you'll usually hear about it because those people will broadcast that they're doing it. But for the most part, people are not going to do that. Right. Um, And that mismatch is really interesting to me because it seems to inform a lot of these questions that we're asking, right? Which is just like, at what is the mismatch between the progressive stated ideals and what these minority communities are actually doing? So Oakland is not a, is not a deep South conservative black population in any type of way, right? But within Oakland, the reason why uh, a lot of the OUSD stuff is failing is because there's been a huge rise in charter schools in Oakland. And people will say, oh, well, the charter schools are bad. I agree with that. I think charter schools are bad. But they will also then turn around and say, well, this is all the private. It's like, it's not. It's black families and Latino families in Oakland who are frustrated with OUSD. And so they've decided for an alternative, any alternative, right, within within their city. There is a woman at Oakland Side, which is a local outlet here that I support and really like. And she went out and she interviewed a whole bunch of black families about why they chose charter schools, you know, and I met her at some point at some event I did. And I told her, I was like, I, there's just an amazing piece of journalism. I think it's the first time I've ever really read anything that is a perspective of these families, right. Without sort of this like preliminary judgment about, about them, about what they're doing. Um, and yeah, so I don't, I don't know how to break that dominance of that type of narrative that sort of overlays everything and that obscures a lot of stuff. And that in fact is like quite insulting to a lot of these families and, and, and kind of mystifies them in some sort of way. Um, 
Yeah, man. I mean, I think that's part and parcel, though, of these like um, these issues that get that like it's easy for the data to dismiss as minor and for like wonks to dismiss as misguided, but that are at the core of, you know, what people, what people think makes a good life. Right. And like what people think makes a good life is like my kids can go to a school where they learn things and they're safe. um, And I can have a car and I can have a house and I can have some sense of security, et cetera. Um, And it's really easy to say, well, like, you know, the actually the data says this and the economy says this and the data says this about charter schools, et cetera. Um, But, you know, I think those are the issues that really motivate people and that um, inform how they feel about the country, how they feel about their place in the country. Um, And that might be irrational or whatever, uh, but it's, you know, those are the I think the marks or the signs people use to sort of um, assess how well things are going. Right. And like those are the things right now that feel like they're really not going well. Schooling you know, housing, et cetera. Um, and I, you know, I don't know what to do about that. And I, it really feels like voters are kind of in a place where they're just like flip flopping between, you know, failures, right? Like, well, Trump sucked. So now we're going to go with Biden. Uh, Biden, you know, isn't fixing these like major problems that I think of as like making up a good life. So now we're going to flip back to Trump. And then I'm sure, right. you know, and that just feels like, I mean, it's kind of like what you were saying about, you know, uh, all these magazines and outlets or whatever, like, this is what we're not, right? Um, And I think that's, we're like trapped in that kind of spiral at the moment. Um, And, you know, there are issues that I think matter to the average voter that Democrats could focus on. I mean, infrastructure is another one. Like it gets laughed at all the time, but like shit is breaking constantly. Trains are coming (laughs) off the tracks, right? Like housing needs built. Like these are issues you can get behind that I think the average voter cares about. And instead we're prattling about, you know, fascism and wokeness and and whatever else. I don't know. Um, And I don't know how you get out of that. And part of it, I think is just social media. I do think one thing, and this is not my observation, but I think it's a right one. One thing that the Biden campaign, at least in 2020, did right was they recognized the difference between Twitter and the real world. You know, right. and that they were like not beholden to sort of um, extremely online progressive politics. Um, and I think that's important. But I think, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll see if Biden can even campaign. I think, um, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but I just think, you know, one of the points that Ezra Klein made in that New York Times op-ed that people got so mad about suggesting that maybe Biden should step down is that like, there's a difference between whether Biden can do the job and whether he can campaign effectively and get a message out. Right. And like, I think that distinction actually really matters. I, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say Biden can do the job, but like, can he go out into various communities and campaign and bring a kind of message on these issues that people think are important? Like, does he have the energy for that? And that seems to me to be a really open question. And getting out of the kind of deadlock you describe seems to depend on having a politician that can do that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, I don't want to relay everything to sports, but it's just how my brain works. But, you know, like in, when you think about baseball, you just say, OK, this guy is like XFIP or whatever advanced stat you want to use is this. And if we put him out there, then he's going to do this. And the numbers will regress over time because this is true talent level. And it'll always go back to that number eventually. The difference that happens is when that person is injured, right, in a way that that is affecting their performance. But they might still be going out there, but like something's wrong. Right. Um, and so you wonder if players injured. That's that's basically where we're at with Biden. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, look, based on all the numbers and everything like that, we absolutely should run him again, right? We shouldn't we shouldn't take a big risk on anything like that. But is he injured? <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, the, that's the question. I don't know the answer to it. I don't think anyone knows the answer to it. I think the people who say that they know the answer to it are like lunatics basically or just kind of wish casting stuff out or maybe just putting out a message because they feel like they need to put out that message but i don't think the vast majority of the public is convinced that you know there's nothing to see here when it comes to biden and his ability to campaign um with that stuff though i you know once again to look at sports it's like when a football when a team base wants their quarterback or they want their coach fired you know and i'm like i'm always like okay so who's who's gonna replace him you know yeah sure <laughs> like, it's like sure you can fire that guy you can fire the next guy but unless you have an idea of who would be better than like this is a kind of pointless so exercise, biden right? is mike so, mccarthy is what you're saying yeah exact biden terrible clock exactly, management yeah exactly mike mccarthy it's like what are you gonna bring in if you can bring in you know i don't know you want to bring in bill belichick or something right like then just say that and just we can compare the two but with a lot of the anti-biden stuff i just don't see that obvious person i guess the person that people say the most is gretchen whitmer or something like that yeah. and you know then just talk about whitmer versus biden it seems more productive than just sort of bagging on this is my most msnbc brain i'll Mm -hmm. ever be but you know just like well you know we're kind of stuck here so we might as well just kind of go with it now i don't think that applies to people i'm talking about myself as like a voter Mm -hmm. here not as like a media person i think the media should just say what they think um but as a voter i'm just like well i kind of stuck here and (laughs) kind of have to ride it out maybe it'll all go really bad so I don't know. We don't have any. We don't really have that many options here. Um, yeah. No, man. I agree with that. I also. I. I guess my take on it is I do agree with the kind of Nate Silver as recline line that we like need to find out sooner rather than later. Like, can he speak in public right. and can he campaign? Like, and I totally agree with that because if he can't, I don't see how you win an election. Um, and so I, I do think that matters, even if there's not an alternative, because if he like can't campaign and if he can't talk for 60 minutes without making a fool of himself, like he's going to lose. And so I think whether or not there's a good alternative at the present, you need to find that out um, sooner rather than later. But I also I mean, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think de- the Democrats should com- campaign on the democracy thing, because like one of the primary objections people give when you like raise these questions about Biden, they're like, who cares? He has a great set of advisors around him. They're really running things everywhere. Anyway, he's just is he's a figurehead. He's a uniter. And then he has like these technical experts around him that are running the country, which is a profoundly anti-democratic way to think about like what a president is supposed to be. And so like right. if that's the case you're making that like. Don't worry about it. Like the experts are in charge. You know, we, we have this old man figurehead who can still get people out to vote. Yeah, blah, the blah, blah. swamp is actually the pre- president. Yeah, the swamp is the great hero. <laughs> then like, don't don't do the democracy thing. Just like, you know, talk about issues or whatever else and like leave the like camps and democracy and authoritarianism stuff to like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is I don't know. I think that there's a lot of look, people are very afraid of Trump. You know, and so mm-hmm. it makes sense. But I, I, I tend to agree with Ezra here, and where they got to show us some more. You know, they got to show us something. Like they can't just they. It's the concerns are not going to go away by being yelled at. You know, by some various number of Twitter accounts or whatever is going to be yelling at people, um, and that the 
the more you insist that it's all fine and that everyone's being terrible without showing the actual proof that people are asking for in good faith. It's not like Ezra Klein is like some raving Bernie bro who's like become horseshoed into like <laughs> becoming like a right wing operative, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like Ezra Klein is very measured and he's quite, you know, like I don't know. I actually think Ezra is very thoughtful and is like pretty Same, good yeah. as a very good columnist. And that uh even if I disagree with a lot of his like whatever like economic policy ideas, like he's 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 not like a charlatan, right? Totally. And so for him to ask, he's not asking this like off the cuff throwing out a hot take right like he's thought about it and he's talked to people he's wondering if this is like something that he can put out there in a responsible way because Ezra has a very big platform over there at the times and um I don't know it worries me that he asked this question right and yeah. like the, the answer can't be like oh well these people are all just like idiots and of course he can run and you know like uh and then not show a video of him being able to do that like that's all we're asking for right we're i think we're asking put him on 60 minutes i'm asking for five good minutes um is there anything else you wanted to talk about in terms of all of this like i think uh one thing i think we didn't talk about is this sort of question about arab american voters in michigan right um and uh how a lot the polling seems to suggest that many of them are not going to show up to vote right like the question isn't whether or not they're going to vote for trump the question is whether they're going to be vote. vote for joe biden right um but uh i don't know maybe we can save that for another episode where we have a guest on or something like that because i think that's a big big issue that i think yeah. is informed by a lot of what we talk about which is just like uh hey shut up do you really want trump right um yeah which is a, you know, that's an argument, but like, I don't know. I think at the point where like your relatives are being killed, like maybe that argument doesn't really hold as much resonance as it does for sort of the abstract yeah, uh, man. suburban white progressive MSNBC voter. No, I mean, I think this is a point um, that was also made about, you know, just the black vote in general, right? As the, in the same way as the Muslim vote, right? Which is that um, a lot of black voters are like a not super supportive of unlimited aid to Israel. But I also think, um, you know, someone else recently pointed out that, um, you know, black voters are one of the highest uh, percentage demographics in terms of um, having family members serve in the armed forces. And they're really opposed to foreign adventurism for that reason, right? Because there are the sons who are coming home in body bags. And I think really similar to the, like, you know, the question of the Michigan Arab vote, like, I think, um, when these voters, when you're telling them, like, you need to worry about fascism, blah, 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 they're not going to vote for Trump. But they might also be thinking like, well, when Trump was in office, my, you know, family over in Palestine wasn't getting blown to bits. And now, you know, Biden is office. And that's the case. And black voters, I think many of them are saying, well, Trump sucked, but he didn't get us into any wars. And Biden is, you know, in the Middle East. And, you know, there's a threat of wider regional war, even if small. And so like, I, I do think there are, um, I think that is one of the reason why the sort of scaremongering about fascism in the camps doesn't work in the same way for yeah, some of these communities, because yeah. they're like, things are actually worse at this juncture in time. And I don't think they're worse for reasons that are Biden's fault, right? Like the Trump people narrative is that, well, like, Trump, when there was, you know, people are afraid of Trump. There wasn't a war in the Middle East and Putin didn't do blah, blah, blah when Trump was in office, et cetera. And I think that's all horseshit. But the fact of the matter is that, like, for some of these demographics, 
during the Biden presidency for reasons that are not exclusively Biden's fault and that are just partly, you know, arbitrary geopolitical whims or whatever. But like there are concrete things that are worse for these groups and like including like life and death things. Um, And so, you know, when you're, you know, invoking the boogeyman of fascism, well, you know, there are a bunch of Palestinian kids getting blown to bits. And I mean, even the um, recent uh, bombing of U.S., U.S. bases in the Middle East where a few um, soldiers died, they were black. Um, And, you know, yeah, I don't know. I think that kind of stuff does weigh on voters' minds. Yeah, it's I mean, I think that's another thing. Look, what we have right now is basically Democrat consultant class saying that none of this stuff is going to matter. And the only thing that's going to matter is abortion. They Mm -hmm. might end up being proven correct. Right. But um, I think they are underestimating the profound emotional impact that this war has had on a lot of people, especially within minority communities, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially within black community and within the Arab Muslim community in America. And that uh, they're counting on essentially what is like a trapped, resentful vote, but they're not doing anything to make it seem better even paying lip service to it, you know, Mm -hmm. will that continue to work? Like, will there be enough time in November where people will like, I don't know, you know, I don't think so. Right now. Do I think that the number of people who are going to vote solely or not vote based solely on this issue is large? Probably not. Right. Mm -hmm. But are there enough? I've been to Dearborn, Michigan many times, you know, are there enough Arab people in Dearborn, Michigan to swing a very close Michigan election that is basically the death knell if Biden loses? And then will the response to that from the MSNBC crowd be, oh, these stupid idiots, you know, like they fucked it up for everybody, right? Like, oh, this is all their fault. Yes. You know, and that's those are my most I'll just say on this, but those are my most red pilled moments when shit like that happens. That's totally. when I like really consider becoming a reactionary <laughs> because it makes me so mad. Right. Yep. Where it's just like you don't understand how people who have family members who are dead because of this war will feel not want to vote for the guy cheerleading this all on. And that if they don't and there's a bad outcome that now it's all their fault, you know, like uh, and that you who have no stakes in any of this, really not you, but, you know, like this hypothetical person are now going to blame this person and say that everything bad that happens is their fault. Like, fuck you. You know, like that's basic. That's my most reactionary moment. No, dude. I mean, (laughs) I feel this way actually about, you know, where I grew up and when people want to blame, well, like all these racists voted for Trump, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, like I said, where I grew up flipped from an Obama place to a Trump place. And also where I grew up during Obama's presidency, people were dying left and right from the opioid epidemic, right? I mean, not to mention the housing stuff, but even just the opioid epidemic. I mean, there was a point where it would be very easy for me to go to a funeral every month for someone I knew in their, you know, when I was in my 20s. Um, And yeah, I mean, the idea that, you know, voters are motivated by racism rather than just like anger at things that are happening in their life that perhaps are not directly the fault of the president of the United States, like the opioid crisis or whatever. But when you have something like that going on, and then you have a bunch of, you know, New York coastal elites that are whining about how you're all a bunch of shitty racists. Meanwhile, you're burying your children. Like, of course, it doesn't exactly endear you, you know? And I think, um, I think this problem applies to a lot of different demographics within 
you know, the Democratic Party, whether it's like sort of the white labor vote that is moving right, whether it's, um, you know, the Muslim Michigan, Michigan Dearborn vote. Like, I, yeah, I think um, I think it applies across the board. And I find it extremely galling like you do when the um, the question is never like what policy decisions or what problems or what um fears and concerns might have motivated this shift or what in what ways might our rhetoric contribute to some of these feelings. Um, it's always that these people are idiots, they're racists. Um, and if you can't call them racist, then you get to call them stupid, you know, um, as in the right, case, right, that's right. definitely what will happen with. I think if, that's the, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah oh, no, no, no. I think that, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, that's what we should end on that thought. I think this, I, the problem, it seems to me, at least the way the common ground that we found, or at least what we, is that perhaps it's necessary to run things this way. And then sort of centering the, I don't want to use the word centering, but whatever, right. Centering the Center MSNBC has this MSNBC white suburban, highly educated voter. Um, and yet the idea that there will not be consequences to that, I think is delusional because, uh, a lot of by centering that voter, you're sort of basically allowing that narrative of like anyone who doesn't agree with us is a fucking idiot and is also racist. Like, and then whatever elisions those people have or whatever blind spot those people have there, you know, Sam Canonis, I think is a very interesting writer and journalist. Right. And I, I don't agree with a lot of Sam's politics, uh, but there's one thing that Sam I th and I look, I'm kind of like speculating here. And so, Sam, if you know, you have my email, if you hear this and you disagree, then tell me. But, you know, Sam wrote this book, Dreamland, and it was about the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. I think it is a fantastic book. Like people yep. should read it. And I think Sam, like the fact that all these people were dying. Right. And that nobody seemed to care right? that it just kind of went unremarked upon by the Democrat Party, I think, did push Sam to the right. Right. And then mm -hmm. his next book, which is about uh meth and fentanyl, you know, is, is, I think is much more obviously kind of like right leaning. Although I mm -hmm. imagine that Sam will vote for, uh, I'm sure he'll vote for, I'm pretty sure he'll vote for Joe Biden over mm -hmm. Donald Trump. If you think about it in that sort of way, like w will the people who are in those margins that are either told they don't count or they're stupid, will they become reactionaries and angry? That's the question, you know, mm -hmm. and will it be enough to crumble the whatever democratic coalition that is this sort of amalgam of different groups and minority groups are very important to that, right? Black voters are 25% of the democratic votership, right? Like that's mm -hmm. a significant amount. Huge. Um, I don't know that I think that's a question going forward. Yeah. I mean, I think you got to win this election, but then there needs to be a real reckoning with like what, like I said, what, what we're doing here exactly. Cause it's, right. it's really unclear at this point. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support this show, you can contribute at goodbye.substack.com um, or you can go to patreon.com slash ttsgpod. You can email us at uh, tts, no, sorry, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on our Twitter. We don't really check the Twitter account for the podcast very much, but you can DM me or Tyler. Tyler, are your DMs open on Twitter? 
Uh, no. Um, oh, mine are. I should do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a man of the people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't get anything interesting. Oh no, I get a, I, I'm interesting in like a concerning way. I get a lot of nice people uh, asking me questions and stuff like that. And so. I oh, that know. sounds charming. Yeah, yeah I think I like bad. turned it off when I wrote about Richard Hennie and all the race IQ freaks were yelling at me for. Like oh yeah, a week. yeah. Then then yeah yeah yeah. You got to weather yeah. that storm and then you can. Yeah open yeah yeah. It. But I've weathered it. I haven't heard from the. Uh, IQ wizards in a while. Maybe I'll open oh it back up. Um, all right, cool. All right. Well, uh, until next week, I'll talk. We'll 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 be back. Cheers.